Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. I'm Ewan Graham. I'm the Executive Director of La Trobe Asia. Um, welcome to tonight's event, Maintaining Stability in a Volatile Region, a Japanese Perspective. Uh, I'd like to start by acknowledging that uh, we're on the traditional lands of the Wurundjeri people uh, and to honour their elders past and present. And as today is Armistice Day, uh, also to acknowledge the um, uh, sacrifices that Indigenous Australians have made in the defence of Australia down the decades. It's my great pleasure to be joined tonight um, by uh, my friend and uh, long-time uh, colleague and um, Dr. Michito, Michito Tsuroka, who's a well-known and respected security scholar who I've interacted with um, over many years, uh, including one of his incarnations uh, in the UK, um, where he has substantial expertise um, and the challenge of mastering uh, the process known as Brexit, which I would not wish on, on anyone. Um, so I hope to learn from him what's happening in uh, the, uh, the country of my birth, which is um, rather hard. Um, it's also a, a great um, pleasure to be uh, hosting an event on Japan, uh, La Trobe Asia. I'm keen that we also are able to uh, um, achieve diversity in the range of countries that we cover. And it's my observation that we don't do enough in Australia, I think, on the Japan relationship. Uh, perhaps due, in fact, to the, the modesty of, of Japan in not singing its own achievements, because I think there is uh, such a depth to the relationship, both in the economic and political and security space. Um, but that's not often, I think, uh, well enough uh, under, understood uh, or publicized. So I think in its own right, simply to be um, celebrating the relationship and exploring that um, is, is a good thing. But we'll be looking uh, on a broader canvas tonight across um, the Indo-Pacific and, and what it means for Japan's own concept of the free and open Indo-Pacific. Uh, Tsuroka-san is currently based uh, at uh, Keio University in the Faculty of Policy Management. Uh, he worked previously for the National Institute for Defense Studies uh, in Tokyo uh, and has been a long-time observer of uh, Europe uh, and, uh, and the British um, security sphere and its contribution to Asia. And that's something, I think, a, a sub-theme that I'd like to uh, return to tonight. But before we get into our in-conversation, it's also a, a great honor um, to be able to uh, invite the Deputy Consul General um, Saito uh, Shunsuke, uh, who will uh, say a few words. Uh, and I'd like to thank the, uh, the Japan uh, Consulate General and the J Japan Ministry of Foreign Affairs for their cooperation in making tonight's event possible. So without further ado, Saito-san. Uh, thank you. Uh, Dr. Yu Eng Graham, Executive Director of Latter of Asia. Dr. Michito Tsuroka, Associate Professor at Keio University. Ladies and gentlemen, good evening. I want to thank everyone for coming and uh, Latter of Asia for co-hosting uh, tonight's event. Since I arrived in Melbourne uh, seven months ago, I have noticed that the relationship between Japan and Australia is strong. 
And it is not only because uh, there are many cultural and uh, people-to-people exchange going on, but also because uh, we both share the common values of democracy, uh, human rights, and uh, uh, rule of law, and at the same time, the common approaches uh, to the international security. So these core, uh, these core values are further strengthened uh, through um, trade and investment ties, which we witness uh, today. We are close partners uh, in the regional uh, uh, forums, such as APEC, uh, East Asia Summit, and we are the key members of TPP-11 and uh, uh, RCEP. And uh, we have a strong relationship in the area of security, and uh, uh, we um, closely uh, work uh, in uh, strategic uh, alliance with the United States. The Asia-Pacific is a very dynamic region and uh, full of opportunities. But uh, at the same time, we must improve our security outlook regarding North Korea and South China Sea and uh, reinforce a rule-based international order among all uh, uh, players in the region. The need for strategic dis discussions has never been greater as we witness a challenge to the existing international order. So thinking through how to navigate uh, these uh, unchart un uncharted waters is of urgent importance. So in this regard, uh, it is great to have Dr. Tsuroka here sharing uh, with us his expertise in this field, and Dr. Graham uh, for contributing tonight's uh, discussions. So I hope you all will uh, get motivated, educated, and inspired by these two speakers tonight. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much, um, Saito-san, for those framing comments. Um, I was um, joking with, uh, with Tsuroka-san uh, earlier today that um, um, not only has he just arrived fresh off a plane from Tokyo, but I've also arrived uh, less fresh off a plane from London. So um, we'll, we'll, we'll also rely on, on the energy of the audience, I think, to, uh, uh, to, to, to make sure that we uh, deliver tonight. Um, so let's get straight, straight to it. And um, this concept of the Indo-Pacific, I think, is the uh, appropriate um, broad canvas on which we all play now. Australia, United States... Um, even ASEAN has, has embraced the concept, India. Um, most countries, of course, China remains somewhat reluctant, uh, but observing nonetheless and acting in a rather Indo-Pacific um, way. But um, could you tell us a bit more, first of all, around how Japan frames its concept? And I use concept uh, advisedly because I think it was originally translated in English as a strategy, and then changed in the formulation that Japan used to a concept. So what's the difference between an Indo-Pacific concept and a strategy would be one question. Um, and also, how does the framing, be it geographical or functional, differ from these other uh, versions of the Indo-Pacific from Australia uh, to the United States? Uh, what's the free and open mean in Japan's context? 
Okay, um, thank you very much. And <clears throat> firstly, I would like to, to say thank you for you hosting. And uh, I, I'm, I'm very pleased to be here this evening. Um, the Indo-Pacific, that's a, that's a sort of a new concept or new terminology in the first place. Uh, we, we used to be using the term Asia-Pacific. So the Indo-Pacific now, the, a lot of people talking about that without fully knowing what it means. So that, that's still the situation. But uh, as a policy terminology, yes, the Indo-Pacific is there. And uh, they, we say that uh, there are three pillars. One is the uh, principles, the, the rule of law and uh, the, the, the freedom of navigation and those uh, principles and rule of, uh, that's, that, that's the first pillar. And the second pillar is the economic prosperity. So the, the free trade agreement and uh, the things and those are a very important part of this, the, this story. And, uh, and thirdly, the peace and security and the peace and stability. And uh, that includes, uh, of course, the, the very military cooperation between the countries in the region and, uh, and also the exercises and also the, the disaster relief operations by, by, by militaries and other actors as well. So the and capacity building is part of the story. So the, it's, it's fairly a comprehensive thing. So the, I personally don't quite care whether it's called a strategy or a vision or concept, whatever. And uh, the, a friend of mine, actually, in the foreign ministry is dealing with this. And uh, I asked uh, the same question to him. And his answer is that, no, 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 no. It, it's not that we have changed name from strategy to vision. Now we allow both. That's, the, that's what he explained to me. And that makes sense. But it's quite unusual for Japanese bureaucracy to allow such choices in describing one thing. So that's why people don't quite still understand and uh, they're still wondering whether we really changed or not. But, uh, but, but in the first place, uh, what, what is important to, 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 to say regarding the, the idea of free and open Indo-Pacific, what is important is that uh, Yes, the, this name, terminology, is new, but the substance, much of the substance is not new. So that we have been doing various things in the broader Indo-Pacific areas for decades, including a development assistance, including a, a, a infrastructure projects, infrastructure financing, and economic activities. And there are so many things Japan has been doing already for many, many, many years. So the, it's a sort of a packaging exercise, repackaging what we have been doing. So the, yes, the, in one sense, the giving a new name is itself a strategic decision, I guess. But at the same time, in terms of substance, we are very proud of the fact that uh, we have been doing those things already for decades. Would it be fair to say that it's um, closer in that sense to a, a rebranding exercise rather than a development of a new strategy? But what about resources? You, you yeah. said that Japan has been doing a lot of these lines of effort um, for decades, but one key way in which I think any policymaker can answer whether something is new or not is on the question of whether more resources are being brought relatively to bear compared to other regions. Yeah, the, I, I don't want to belittle the importance of FOIP 
free and open in the Pacific. I think it, the usage of this terminology, I think itself has a strategic meaning. So the, but the substance, we, are, we have been doing. And yes, the resource question, that's, a, that's quite a good question. And uh, the, the one of the things that I can say is that uh, there's a more political commitment, political engagement. And that, that is not always quite easy. So the, but uh, as for economic aspect, particularly the, the official development assistance side, it's not quite uh, the increasing quite fast. So the, but uh, more wiser, I think, uh, way of using money, I think it's something that uh, we, we need to think about. And, and we'll return later to the yeah. Australia-Japan cooperation question, but the infrastructure point is, is um, moot because recently in the news there was the uh, announcement that the United States, Australia and Japan would be working trilaterally on a new code or um, blue dot approach to infrastructure development in, in the Indo-Pacific. I think the reality is um, the United States... Its, its footprint in terms of infrastructure in, in Asia now is minimal. Uh, and Australia obviously does what it can, but its base is much smaller, uh, which leaves, I think, a lot of the heavy lifting to, um, to Japan. So it's, it's a question, I think, that um, is not really abstract. It's also something that uh, will uh, matter to partners of Japan, including Australia and, and, and the US, particularly on that infrastructure question. Um, before we go on to the, the substantive relationships, just one more point on the Indo-Pacific, um, Tsuroka-san. One difference between Japan's definition of the Indo-Pacific and Australia's is that Japan's goes all the way across the Indian Ocean. So it's quite ambitious in that <laughs> sense, all the way over to, to um, Africa. And it, and it embraces, I think, the Indian Ocean as it is, a full ocean, instead of having a an arbitrary dotted line down the middle, as Australia does. Um, how significant is that? You mean the African part? Yeah. <laughs> That's quite significant, but uh, not many Japanese are fully aware of that. And, but uh, the, one of the contexts uh, of the African part of the FOIP is that uh, the Prime Minister Abe first announced the FOIP concept in a ticket conference, and TICAT stands for the Tokyo International Conference on African Development. And uh, so that was a Prime Minister Abe's speech in Nairobi two years ago. So the, it was just uh, natural for, for Abe to include uh, Africa and also the, in the context of TICAT process, the, the, we, we, we are very much interested in uh, how we can engage more in African peace and security and economic development. But uh, for ordinary Japanese people, Africa is seen as too, too far away. So the, how we can maintain the level of uh, um, the interest, awareness regarding Africa, that's, uh, that's a huge uh, challenge. But uh, the another the, the, uh, element here is that uh, just, uh, I think it was uh, two months ago, in September, in Brussels, the, 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 the European Union hosted a Europe uh, connectivity forum which is a, the Europe's idea of dealing with connectivity between uh, Europe and all the, all, all the way through to, to, to Asia. 
So the people say that uh, it's a sort of a EU's counter uh, initiative against the China's uh, Belt and Road Initiative, BRI, and uh, the EU somehow chose Japan as the main partner in, in doing that. And, and, and we signed, uh, the Prime Minister Abe and uh, the European Commission President, Mr. Juncker, uh, signed a, a EU-Japan connectivity partnership document. And uh, it talks about Africa, Western Balkans, and of course the, India, in, the Indo-Pacific areas, including uh, Southeast Asia and those uh, Asian parts. So the, in the context of Europe-Japan connectivity partnership as well, we are, we are talking about Africa as well. Yeah. Okay, let's get um, to the, the key relationships and um, let's start with the country that sees itself as the center. Um, um, <laughs> <laughs> um, so China is, is obviously uh, at the core of, of many of the geopolitical questions that, uh, that we are, are preoccupied with, um, but its own position on the Indo-Pacific has been uh, reticent. Uh, Japan has been, in my observation, through quite an interesting phase in the China relationship. We've seen some noticeable um, thawing of, the, of um, what was a a rather frosty relationship for many years uh, under um, Prime Minister Abe and uh, Xi Jinping. Uh, we saw the visit of Chinese naval vessels to take part in a, a defence fleet review in Japan, uh, and since then an announcement of um, a global partnership, rather, rather ambitious in scope from the Japanese side, uh, and potentially a, uh, a, a state visit um, in the works. Um, how much of this is is really a reset, um, and how much of this is actually the same dance that all of the Pacific allies and partners are doing between their source of economic prosperity on one hand and their um, alliance source of security on the other? The yes, China is, I think, the biggest challenge that uh, Japan faces in the region or perhaps beyond. The, you're quite right that the political climate of Japan-China relationship is far better than just a few years ago. So the, there are a, now a lot of uh, more positive talks about uh, Sino-Japanese cooperation, including a Japan-China cooperation in third countries in the context of China's BRI. So the, we have yet to come up with a concrete projects for that, but uh, there is a strong political commitment to cooperate, even in the context of BRI, despite the fact that uh, Japan has yet to formally join BRI. So the, uh, and also, as you mentioned, that uh, President Xi Jinping is, is, is supposed to come to Japan and next spring. So, so the, there are a lot of positive things, but, but uh, what I concern about is that uh, at the same time, simultaneously, there are, there are negative things continuing. So including uh, China's daily challenges in East China Sea against the uh, Senkaku Islands and, uh, and also the just uh, last month, it became uh, clear that uh, the, the, the professor of Hokkaido University was captured for unknown reasons. And uh, he's remained captivity in more than an hour, one and a half months now, nearly two months now. 
So the, that sort of a negative things continue. So the, how we can make a balance between positive things and negative things? Of course, the, there is a political commitment to improve relations, bilateral relations, but at the same time, the, we, we should not forget about uh, negative things happening. That's, uh, that's a sort of a delicate balance. But they're not mutually contradictory. You can have cooperation and confrontation at the sure, same sure, time sure, sure. On, on different sure. levels yep. and different issues. Uh, I'm sure we'll come back to that in the question and answer, but um, in the interest of time, I want to move on to um, the other big relationship that you have to negotiate, the United States, Japan's only ally, the cornerstone of its security policy uh, since 1945. Uh, and one on which um, the Prime Minister uh, has placed a, a great deal of uh, continuity and stock. Um, but obviously, continuity uh, with the Trump White House is something of a, um, uh, a guessing game, shall we say. Uh, how does Japan um, negotiate this uh, uh, relationship with, with the United States that is more transactional, um, harder to... Harder to uh, predict uh, and more insistent on its uh, national interests that, than any of its predecessors. The, we say that uh, the, the state of the US-Japan alliance has never been better. So the, it's in a really good shape, including the personal relationship between President, uh, President Trump and Prime Minister Abe. That's for sure. And uh, so Prime Minister Abe, I think, has been quite successful, at least in establishing good personal relationship with the U.S. president. Because the, in the light of the, the security situation surrounding Japan, so North Korea, rise of China, we don't have the luxury of distancing ourselves from the United States. So whoever sits in the White House, whether you like him as a person or not, that doesn't matter. Because the United States is the only ally which is committed to help defend Japan. So the Japanese Prime Minister doesn't have any choice. So, the, so I think the, what, what Mr. Abe has been doing, I, I think it's really uh, in line with what Japan as a country need, needed to do. So the, so, so, so the quite successful for the moment. But the problem is that uh, there are more and more skeptical voices here, hard in Japan. And one of which is that uh, the, the burden sharing is something that uh, Trump has been raising, not just in the context of the US-Japan alliance, but also vis-a-vis -vis South Korea or more vis-a-vis -vis NATO. So, the, for example, the 2% GDP, 2% of uh, defense budget, uh, defense expenditure, and uh, the United States is pushing the Europeans to, 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 to spend more on defense. But uh, as for Japan, we have yet to see such a overt, explicit pressure to, to, to Japan to spend more on defense. But uh, the next year, we are going to we, we, we need to start a new round of negotiation on what we call host nation support. That's a Japanese financial contribution to the U.S. basis in Japan. And uh, the South Koreans have been having a very difficult time in negotiating their version of uh, host nation support. So the, that, that is uh, one of the head, uh, headaches. And, uh, and also trade front, the, we already concluded a bilateral. We wouldn't call it FTA, but uh, 
sort of FTA type of uh, US-Japan bilateral trade deal. So there, there are some criticism in Japan on that. So the, but uh, but uh, we, we are we are planning to to ratify that uh, through the parliament uh, the, by the end of this year. So the so so the economic front sort of a a now a the the big hurdle is is now gone. But uh, so the host nation support issue and also how to deal with China could become a more difficult issue in the U.S.-Japan alliance in the context of Huawei or in the context of uh, the high-tech, uh, AI, uh, and th th those issues. And uh, yeah, because the, you see that uh, more and more Americans talk about decoupling with the United States from China. But uh, decoupling for Japan, that's a lot more, much more difficult. But maybe there's an irony here, because if we're looking at decoupling, and you reference South Korea, um, where Japan has been on the front foot in decoupling is in economic sanctions towards the other US ally, um, the South Koreans who have felt the brunt, I think, of Japan's um, trade pressure, particularly on on um, the supply of, of, of chips in a, in, a, in a vital category where there's very high dependence on, on Japan. But the, the contrast between, as you put it, the relationship that um, on contributions to U.S. Um, forces resident, uh, certainly I agree. I think the South Koreans are feeling that much more directly from the United States at the moment, if the reports are correct, that the White House's demand is that uh, the contribution needs to be fivefold uh, from where it is uh, currently uh, that obviously is going to send shivers down. Um. Including support for U.S. forces in Okinawa. Ah, That's what okay, uh, right. some reports say Americans are asking Koreans. Well, maybe that will bring Japan and Korea closer together. Who knows? Um, but that's been a relationship which has been, I think, um, everyone, uh, not just the United States, but including those of, of us here in Australia who look up uh, at South Korea and Japan, both as, as trusted partners and friends, uh, with increasing dismay to see uh, such discord um, between two so important countries that share so many interests uh, um, together, let alone with, with third countries. It seems also recently as if there's been a slight change uh, in the South Korean position, which many people did not predict, and a reaching out from the Moon administration towards uh, Prime Minister Abe to try and um, get out of the gridlock. Um, in, in that context, what would it take, from, in, your, in your view, from the Japanese uh, side to reset relations with, with South Korea? Because we, we know there are, there are historical issues that keep um, uh, being revisited uh, and um, which, which plunge the relationship into a political crisis after political crisis. Uh, are you condemned to be, continue to repeat this cycle? Uh, or is there genuine hope under this administration in Seoul of uh, changing the relationship for the better? I personally am quite uh, sceptical and pessimistic about the, the prospect of the, the bilateral relationship between Japan and South Korea, particularly under President Moon Jae-in. So the, the Japanese position, I guess, is quite clear. The, the, one of the most fundamental points 
in Japan's argument is that uh, we need to respect the 1965 basic treaty between the two countries, which established, re-established the, uh, the diplomatic relations between the two countries after the war. So the, if you start questioning that, then the, all the, the relationship between the two countries after the war would collapse. So the, and that's something that the, South Korea, the successive South Korean governments also supported. So the, so 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 I think on the Japanese side, the, the, the biggest voices are on the legal foundation of this relationship. But of course, there there are other aspects. Of course, the political, emotional. So that's more difficult to deal with. But just let me ask you about the political side of things yeah. because. My observation of, of the South Korean um, relationship towards Japan, there's no obvious downside for any Korean politician who takes a harder line towards Japan. That's why we tend to see any president towards the end of their term, they will normally, it's almost like pressing the button. It, it becomes predictable that, that um, Japan is a way of, of rallying public support, um, uh, especially if, if there are domestic um, problems in South Korea. But what about on the Japanese side? Um, so... Prime Minister Abe also has his politics. Uh, he's well known to be a conservative and a skeptic on South Korea, but uh, is his position also boxed in by those around him? Yeah. I think there, there, are, there are various conservative uh, right-wing people bashing South Korea. Yeah, that, that voices are there, and uh, that's part of domestic politics, of course. But uh, the, I don't think that uh, those uh, extreme voices are driving Japan's policy. So the, what, what I think uh, Japan is doing vis-a-vis -vis South Korea, I think uh, is of more technical nature. So, so you mentioned uh, the economic sanctions, but it's not economic sanctions. It's just uh, the, the technical uh, uh, procedure in, in, in the field of uh, export control. So the, nothing to do with politics in the first place. But of course, the, the way in which, even in Japan, the way in which we discuss this issue gives a very wrong impression that uh, we are punishing South Koreans. But in fact, it's not. So the, on the Japanese side as well, the, the way in which we deal with this issue has never been perfect. Yeah. I think it probably feels like punishment in, in South Korea. And maybe if there's a broader point here, the fact that we have the United States now itself resorting to uh, tariffs uh, on any bilateral issue that it cares to, uh, to take um, uh, issue with uh, opens the gate, opens the box for other actors to follow suit. In that sense, maybe it was easier for Prime Minister Abe to do what he did, regardless of whether it's official sanctions policy or not, in a broader international context in which it's more permissive to use economic coercion than, than it was. You can rebut that if you like, but I'll just put it, put it to you. Let's move on um, to the Australian relationship because um, we're here, obviously, um, and as I said, in, uh, it was clear from um, Mr Saito's comments, the Australia-Japan relationship is an important one from uh, Tokyo's perspective. I think it certainly is from Canberra's perspective. It's the one that's closest to think of all of the Pacific allies. There's uh, much obvious symmetry to it. 
but it's also been a long time developing. Uh, we had the issue with the submarines that some years ago. Uh, has that been, I think, now um, put behind uh, from, from uh, the Japanese perspective? Uh, is, is the bilateral relationship, and for that matter, the trilateral relationship with the United States, it, it, how important is that in the Japanese uh, line of effort on the Indo-Pacific uh, vision? Yeah, submarines. I think it's uh, it's not a current a uh, a problem prohibiting us from cooperating more. So the the U.S. yes, the U.S., Japan, Australia trilateral, or sometimes uh, we include India as well in Quad. And yes, those uh, what we often call mini lateral uh, cooperation. I think it's a a new way of dealing with security issues. But uh, in concrete terms, the, I think the, the most basic are the US-Japan alliance and uh, the US-Australia alliance and increasing Japan-Australia uh, security and defense uh, partnership. And then only based on that, we can think of trilateral or even quad. So the, well, I'm... I very much appreciate the fact that uh, the, the Japan-Australia, the practical cooperation, including joint exercises, I think that that, that is quite uh, uh, making uh, huge progress. And those, I think, substantial uh, things are really important. Of course, the, sometimes the summit meeting or the two plus two statements, that's important. But uh, on the ground, the fact that uh, more and more Australians and Japanese are working together, and that's, that's quite uh, new. Just to underline that, um, we've seen a, a big step up in Japan's participation in this year's version of the Talisman Sabre yeah. exercise with um, two ships that were brought yeah. down and, and a much uh, larger contingent. And in the other direction, we've seen Australian F-18 fighter aircraft yeah. taking part in exercises in Japan, which I think even five years ago, we, we wouldn't have expected yeah, that, that level of, of cooperation. Also at the political level, Prime Minister Morrison has, has um, signaled that Prime Minister Abe is someone who he looks to in particular um, for, for uh, a lead uh, within, within the region. So I think that's another good indicator that uh, from Canberra's perspective under the current um, leadership, yeah, exactly. Japan has a, 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 an important place. You mentioned the quad. Um, so for those in the audience who are not familiar with it, the quadrilateral uh, is a, a loose grouping of India, uh, Australia, United States and Japan, uh, which um, was in recess for best part of a decade, then was revived, met at a very discreet, almost um, you know, low-key uh, level, official level, it's now been escalated to foreign minister meetings and, has, uh, and the number of meetings has also increased. What does the Quad mean for Japan? Is there a signaling element to it? Because the question that inevitably accompanies the Quad is it's all about containing China. So how does Japan approach that, particularly given its current embrace of China? The, oh, to be quite frank, it's... it's we cannot control how Chinese view this mechanism. So it's just okay for us, for them to think that quote, it's a means to contain China or at least counter various Chinese activities. And uh, 
we it's just okay. But of course, the from a Japanese perspective, the 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 another element of this is the is, is the strategic partnership between Japan and India, bilateral ones, and which is which which is remarkably persistent, because uh, it started when Prime Minister Abe was prime minister for the first time in 2006 and 2007. And then, the, after that uh, successive uh, the Democratic Party of Japan government, and those DPJ governments continued the Japan's overture, strategic overture to India. And then the LDP government, Abe, came back to power and then, of course, continuing. So, so the, you can say that uh, there's a bipartisan support for about the, the strategic importance of India as a strategic partner. But uh, the still a challenge is that uh, to what extent we can put our resources in that partnership. So the, my impression is that uh, India-Japan strategic partnership has always been a political-driven process. So the economic part, I think, needs to grow more in terms of the number of Japanese companies operating in India or trade figures. It's not quite increasing. There was some discussion about Japan's involvement in high-speed rail, a number of projects. Yeah. Has, has there been any progress that you're aware of on Yeah, some on progress. That? Yeah, but uh, the, still the challenge is that uh, compared to the number of Japanese companies operating in China, the Japanese companies in India is just a very tiny, tiny bit. So the, in, for many people in Japan, India is very far away. So the first and foremost, Japanese conception of Asia has to do with a Northeast Asia. So Korean Peninsula, China, and Japan. And then next is a new layer, the Southeast Asia, mainly in ASEAN countries. And then much beyond that, you have India. So the, as seen from here, India is very close, in geographical terms at least. And seen from Europe as well, India is the closest part of Asia. But for us, India is the most distant part of India, uh, Asia. So that sort of a mental sort of a, the mindset issue, I think it's still there. Maybe this gets back to the value of the concept of an Indo-Pacific, yeah. because how you frame your geography ultimately does influence, I think, how, exactly, you, exactly. how you look at the importance of relationships and how you're um, willing to, to resource them. I remember from looking at maritime security issues sure, sure. years ago, that from the Japanese perspective, the Indian Ocean was often regarded as a blind spot, a blind spot that was nonetheless crucial because mm -hmm. of your reliance on energy imports exactly, exactly. that comes through that line uh, in which India is going to be a critical sure. um, um, partner. Finally, before we turn over to the audience, um, given that you have such expertise uh, on Europe and, uh, and Britain, and I have to separate those two uh, <laughs> now, um, Mitch Tote, can you tell us, um, in your view, how important is the European role in Asia from a Japanese perspective? Um, we've seen a growth in bilateral partnership between the UK and Japan uh, really, I think, achieved some impressive yeah. momentum in recent years, uh, with France, too, in the defence and security space, um, with the EU itself and NATO um, that there have also been in initiatives. Uh, how much does this uh, occupy the 
geopolitical mindset of Prime Minister Abe and those around him who are, who are advising him, and yourself? The, the value of Europe as a security and strategic partner for Japan has increased quite a lot over the past, I think, several years. And uh, EU-Japan uh, FTA, the Economic Partnership Agreement, together with what is called SPA, the Strategic Partnership Agreement between the EU and Japan, both entered into force uh, earlier this year. And that uh, sort of a, is a, a foundation uh, on which we can build, we can develop uh, this uh, bilateral relationship with, uh, with the EU. And uh, I, I mentioned the, the connectivity partnership between the EU and Japan, which is very much closely in line with what Japan wants to do in the wider Indo-Pacific area. So the EU matters more than in the past. And, uh, and also you... You, you talked about uh, the bilateral uh, cooperation that Japan has with uh, individual European countries, particularly the UK and France, when it comes to security and defense. The, yes, the, we are very much happy that uh, more British ships and more French ships come to this part of the region, and uh, including South China Sea or visiting Japan and uh, doing various uh, the monitoring activities on, 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 on regarding uh, North Korea. So they're monitoring the ship-to-ship -ship, uh, uh, transfer. And so, so the Australians are all, all also uh, from time to time come. And uh, so, 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 so these are more constant level of interest in Asian security and defense issues from Europe. It's something we very much appreciate. So the, what is lacking is the German presence. So Germany is the biggest country in the European Union, but uh, when it comes to Asian security landscape, you can't find Germany. So the, that's one thing. And the EU itself has, a, has, I think, more potential, particularly in the field of uh, capacity building or the intersection between security and economy nexus between security and development and the, those areas. There are, I think, more room for, for them to think about. Great. Um, that completes our tour of the yeah. Indo-Pacific horizon, um, broad as it is. Um, I want to open it now for questions from the audience. Um, could you please identify yourself and wait until the microphone comes to you? We are recording tonight's event. And please um, keep your question as... Uh, short as possible, so we can fit as many in in the remaining time. Please raise your hand if you've got a question. Hi, thanks. My name's Johnny. Um, I'm just interested in sort of the rise of right-wing populism around the world. I'm wondering, in Japan, domestically, how strong is the opposition to Prime Minister Abe's sort of um, jingoistic rhetoric? Is there a strong left-wing in Japan? Um, no. The, yes, the, the populism in Europe or in some other countries, there are two kinds of populism. So, so the right-wing populism and left-wing populism. In Japan, right-wing populism, there are some perhaps, but left-wing populism, I can't see any. So the, for example, the one, of the, one of the things that I often wonder is the lack of, for example, the climate change activists 
students' uh, demonstrations. In Japan, we don't see a lot of those things happening. So the, the Green Party tradition is not quite there, and uh, particularly after, after the after 1990s, the left-wing parties haven't been doing quite well. So the DPJ government, which uh, took power in uh, 2009 until 2012, but uh, I'm not sure whether that was a center, really a center-left government or not. Because in the first place, I think the, the dividing line between center-right and center-left, or right and left, I think is not quite clear. For example, the, the Conservative Party, the current government, LDP, has the biggest ever budget. So it's not a party for small government. So the, it's, the, the, the dividing line between small government and big government is also very blurred in Japan. So, so the, I think that's uh, one of the I, I think contexts in which we can think of uh, those uh, the left-wing populism or right-wing populism or the lack of left-wing populism. Let, let me just build on that question because it's also evident that particularly since the 2011 um, triple disaster that there was the, the growth of the NGO movement has become much more stronger and, yeah. and, and evident in Japan, but the left-wing parties haven't somehow been able to, to latch on to that, even though, I mean, I have to note, you also do have one of the longest-serving communist parties, which still remains open in, in the open and um, attracts a certain yeah. vote base. Yeah, core supporters are there for the Communist Party of Japan. Yes, they, they are, I think, the, the, the most sort of solid part of uh, left-wing opposition to the government, the Communist Party of Japan. So the other parties uh, are formed and disappeared, and the Communist Party is the most sort of a consistent presence. Yeah. But of course, the, there are so many people who hate communism, for obvious reasons. Yeah. So it can't be a really big force. Hard to see who um, other hands in the audience. Um, we'll just go. Oh, sorry. There's a lady at the at the back, or gentleman at the back. So, sorry. I, that's, if you just wait until a microphone comes. <laughs> we can't see. It. <laughs> um, hello there. Uh, my name's Josh. Um, just want to touch on um, what your thoughts on how Japan will deal with North Korea, especially after they've started becoming more of a threat over the past two months. I mean, their rhetoric started to change, so... And I noticed that Japan really hadn't played any major part when the, after um, the New Year's address a couple of years ago from Kim Jong-un. So I wonder what Japan would be doing from here on. Thank you very much. We, we are very much concerned about uh, North Korea's uh, ballistic missiles and nuclear weapons. And uh, what is quite important is that uh, despite all the political and diplomatic rhetoric about denuclearization of North Korea, nothing has happened in terms of capability. So the, perhaps you can argue that uh, compared to two years ago or so, that before the Singapore summit between Kim Jong-un and Trump, the political climate is certainly better. But uh, in terms of capability, North Korean capability has never declined or perhaps you can say that the, it keeps increasing. 
So the North Koreans have been doing various, a number of uh, the, the test launches of short-range missiles. And uh, Mr. Trump says that uh, it's just short-range missiles. I don't care, that's what uh, Mr. Trump says. But uh, in Japan, we care those missiles a lot, for obvious reasons. So the, and also, the, another, the element of this is that uh, North Koreans can use new technologies or new improvements of their technologies for short-range missiles, for long-range ones as well. So the, that's what uh, American experts and officials and the military people are fully aware. So they are very much concerned about uh, the recent series of uh, short-range missile tests. But uh, the problem is that uh, the Mr. Trump openly says that uh, I don't care short-range missiles. So, so, so the Prime Minister Abe has been trying to trying to change Mr. Trump's mind, but uh, so far it's not quite uh, successful. Um, no more successful than changing Kim Jong-un's mind, for that matter. <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, that's very difficult, because the, what, at least uh, the, what Kim Jong-un has been saying is that uh, we need a security guarantee. But... Uh, what security guarantee means. It's a bilateral agreement, and bilateral agreement can be, can be, can be, can be, um, the, the U US has withdrawn from various international uh, agreements, like the Paris uh, Climate Agreement, or the JCPOA, the Iranian nuclear deal. So the, if I were Kim Jong-un, then I would be very careful in what we can, what I can trust. If I were Kim Jong-un, I'd also be aware that one of the few um, major players I hadn't talked to yet is Japan. And the question of Japan-North Korea talks does occasionally come up. Hasn't happened, or if it has happened, it's been kept secret. But um, what, what are the prospects of, of bilateral contacts being uh, resumed under Prime Minister Abe? Now, Prime Minister Abe has been saying that we don't put any conditions. We are ready to meet Kim Jong-un. But Kim Jong-un says that, no, 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 I'm not interested in meeting you. So the, oh, of course, the, I, I, I assume that uh, there are various uh, the secret uh, uh, interactions uh, taking place. Uh, but uh, the, 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 I think the, one of the basic things about the bilateral relationship between North Korea and Japan is that Japan is prepared to negotiate, uh, to, to, to establish uh, diplomatic relations, and that's going to be a bilateral sort of deal. And with that, many people believe that uh, Japan is prepared to give some economic assistance. And, but under the current circumstances, it's just impossible for the Japanese government to make economic assistance to North Korea while UN sanctions are in place and uh, missiles, they, are, they, they keep uh, firing missiles and then that, uh, that, that makes things very difficult. Um, are there any women in the audience who would like to ask a question? Um, I'm Beth. Um, in relation to you mentioned that um, 
U.S. is your ally, and then Trump doesn't care about the short-range missile, and you care about the short-range uh, short missile. And you mentioned also that your political um, relationship with China is going into positive side. Now, may I know your point as to the Philippine, uh, West Philippine Sea or the so-called South China Sea right now that so isn't going chaos right now? Yeah, the, we, have been, we haven't been quite successful in, in preventing Chinese from militarizing their artificial islands in, in the South China Sea. So the Chinese have been, what we call probing, is something that Chinese have been doing. Because from their point of view, from Chinese point of view, it's quite important where the United States, Japan, or other countries draw sort of red line. But uh, Chinese are fully aware that uh, the Americans are not prepared to take concrete action against Chinese moves in South China Sea. So the salami slicing is another terminology that we, we often use. So the step by step, step by step, they have been increasing their presence in the South China Sea. So the, and some people argue that uh, those artificial islands are quite vulnerable. So in the, in the, in the event of war, it's easy to attack those islands. But the problem is that, not a problem, it, it's, a, it's very fortunate, but uh, we are not fighting war. So the Americans are not going to attack those uh, islands. So the, as long as this, what we call gray zone situation, situation short of war, then those artificial islands and the runways really matter. So the, we are sort of losing this uh, sort of peacetime competition so that they are fully aware that uh, we are not prepared to sort of roll back what Chinese are doing. I, I think uh, many countries find themselves in a similar position, but since the question addressed the Philippines, the Philippine-Japan relationship does seem to have uh, uh, grown, uh, perhaps for the uh, tactical reason that under the Duterte administration it's easier to deal with Japan and perhaps Australia than it is to deal with the United States. But has that been something that Japan's been able to capitalize on? The, we are not trying to force the Philippines to cut ties with China. It's just impossible. We are not forcing that. But uh, the fact that uh, President Duterte and Prime Minister Abe have really good personal relationship, that's a huge plus for Japan in terms of uh, engaging the Philippines. So the, our aim is to always, at the, that, that, that's also part of the, the FOIP and the connectivity partnership as well. Our aim is to offer alternatives. So the some people in Southeast Asia, they tend to believe that uh, the Chinese model is the only available model, but that's not the case. We need to ensure that there are alternatives and there are choices, but that doesn't mean that we are forcing other countries to choose Japanese model rather than Chinese model, but uh, 
the fact that there are alternatives, choices, that's, that's really important. And, and that, that's also the, the, about, uh, the Philippines as well. And we are not forcing them. Choices that emphasize standards and, and quality as exactly, well. Exactly, exactly. Um, Adam Bartley, you've been waiting patiently in the third row. Yes, thank you. Uh, you and you've kind of taken my question, so I might redirect it more to sort of ASEAN and Malaysia. Um, I was wondering, what is, I mean, what are Japan's hopes for ASEAN uh, moving forward uh, with the security concept, uh, the Indo-Pacific? Um, but also, um, uh, I mean, uh, especially with Malaysia, uh, just recently, I mean, um, the government there has kind of come out and said, well, there's nothing we can really do about China. It's there. It's, it's, we just kind of have to live with it and move on. I mean... Is there, do you think, I mean, do you see a greater relationship developing there with Malaysia at all? Or what are the hopes there, I guess? Yeah, there, in, in ASEAN as well, we are not uh, trying to wipe out Chinese infrastructure project, Chinese presence, no, no, it's just impossible. And uh, also, the, what, is important to, uh, what is important to notice and uh, bear in our mind is that Chinese activities, some of which are really good, and some of which are not acceptable. So the, our challenge is where to draw a line between what is acceptable and what is not acceptable regarding Chinese activities. So the, I don't think we have, a, we have come up with a definitive answer for that. So it's still a homework. So the, in Malaysia, for example, in infrastructure projects, and uh, there are various voices within Malaysia as well, and uh, for that matter, in other countries as well. So the... So again, that uh, we are not trying to wipe out Chinese, and so, so how we can coexist for the benefit of local people, local government. I think that's, uh, that's I think, uh, part of uh, uh, what we call uh, the third country cooperation between Japan and China. But uh, still, our challenge is uh, where to draw a line between what is accepted and what is not. Can I make a suggestion on yeah. that? I, I think in, in the space in which we work, in think tanks and academia, I'm aware that some of my Malaysian friends and colleagues would like to go to Japan, but they're not aware of who their counterparts are, and they don't receive the invitations that they do to go to China. And They often go to China, but they don't find the opportunity to go to Japan. So maybe if there's a way for the Japanese government or private individuals to make that work, I think they would certainly be um, open from, from uh, the Malaysian side. Yeah, sure, sure, sure. They're I fully agree that uh, there should be more think tanks and other frameworks and the convenings and uh, yeah, it's really important uh, to invite uh, on a regular basis the experts from other countries and uh, not just to, to, to tell Japanese positions to them but also to fully interact, really genuinely interact with among those who have different ideas and different philosophies or different beliefs. Yeah, that's... Uh, that's really important, of course, always. Well, um, Tsuroko-san, you've certainly passed the bar on uh, genuine interaction as far as I'm concerned this evening. Uh, I think we had a good, uh, frank, full conversation. I certainly learned some new things. I hope you in the audience did too. Unfortunately, we have to stick to time, and this is the end of our hour. Um, but I hope it won't be the last event that we do uh, that's um, Japan-facing. It is important, I think, to keep Japan's uh, voice uh, present um, and as I said um, to help you overcome your modesty 
in selling your importance and achievements because I think uh, there is a, a job of selling to be done. Yeah, exactly. Uh, exactly. And, and I think you've, you've certainly helped that tonight. So Strategic thank you. Strategic messaging, yeah. Thank, thank you. you very much. Thank you.